Hey, everybody, you're listening to Angel Nears. Angel Nears is a Silicon Valley community that brings startup builders and experienced operators together to share key insights on how to build and scale startups. I'm your host, Oleg Kujikov, and our guest today is Aaron Nathan, a co-founder and CEO of Point One Navigation that's solving one of the key unsolved problems for intelligent machines, determining position with a high degree of precision and confidence in all situations. They do this with a unique combination of computer vision, satellite navigation, and sensor fusion. Today, we're talking with Aaron about how all of that combined is solving the transportation problems of the future. But before we get into that, Aaron, welcome to the show. Hey, Lloyd. Uh, thanks for having me. <laughs> yeah, uh, let's get to know you a little bit. Tell us about yourself. How did you, how did you get started in technology? Yeah, I mean, I've been uh, obsessed with robotics uh, really ever since I was a kid, and I made it kind of a mission to go to Cornell and work on the robotics soccer team. I did that. And then after, while I was in university, the um, Department of Defense announced this project to go and build a car that could go drive 100 miles through the desert with no driver. Um, and that was called the DARPA Grand Challenge. And I also am a big uh, car person. And so to join robotics and cars into one project was kind of one of the most exciting things that could possibly happen. So immediately, um, I started a team uh, at Cornell to actually go and compete in the Grand Challenge. Um, and that basically started my career and, frankly, many others' careers that are in the autonomous driving space today. We, uh, yeah, went from there to basically building not one, but two vehicles. We were one of the six that actually finished uh, the actual challenge itself and really just got to see all the different problems that uh, go into building uh, such complicated robotic machines. And location was kind of one of the most fascinating. And um, really, uh, that was where I focused my career professionally on um, since I graduated college. Really interesting. I, I almost remember that like being in the news. I think I was, you know, in high school at the time. But can you expand on the DARPA, ch on the DARPA Grand Challenge? Like, what was it? And... Um, yeah, talk more about the solution you put together and what technologies you worked with. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, so the Grand Challenge at a very high level, the idea was to take a vehicle and have it originally drive first through the desert for about 100 miles um, with no driver. And so this is rough off-road terrain. And basically, all you had were a series of kind of GPS waypoints and you had to make the car be able to navigate, you know, rocks, boulders, cliffs, all kinds of crazy things. Um, and you have to understand that, like, back then, like, a whole server had less processing power than your iPhone. Um, and so <laughs> it was, you know, quite a, uh, a challenging thing to do. And the first year, I think the best team was Carnegie Mellon, and they made it seven miles. And so, <laughs> you know, it was a incredibly ambitious uh, <laughs> thing to do. Now, the second time they did it, there it was the same idea. It was, you know, go drive 100 miles in the desert. And uh, actually, a bunch of teams finished. And so this was, this was incredible progress to see. Um, so much so that then the third time, DARPA, the agency that was running this competition, they said, okay, we're going to raise the stakes. We're going to now basically make a mock city. So they took an old army base 
And uh, they hired like a whole bunch of stunt drivers to simulate traffic. So you had like, I don't know, 34 tourists driving around. And uh, they basically had, I think it was 12 vehicles that um, went through all these qualifications and they just drove around simulating kind of like an Uber-like service, picking up, you know, virtual people. It wasn't actual people, but the cars would have to go and navigate stop signs and, you know, basically not run into each other, not run into the other car traffic, the buildings, um, incredibly difficult to do. Um, and yeah, we were one of the six teams that actually managed to do that for six hours continuously with no human interaction, no one in the driver's seat. Um, and this was, wow, 14 years ago. So <laughs> yeah, it's, um, this was honestly the Genesis point for, uh, many companies in the autonomous driving space, um, the people who went on to build the Google uh, self-driving car that's now Waymo, Cruise, uh, you know, uh, the guys at Aurora. I mean, they're all uh, from the original DARPA Urban Challenge days. So it's, um, it's kind of amazing to see how much uh, has really stemmed from that one event. <laughs> really cool. Really cool. So curious to learn more about, like, what kind of technologies did you use in that challenge that you'd later bring to to your current venture to to point one nav because like these cars had a challenge right of navigating a hundred miles of desert but the solution you picked you know you could if i if i knew exactly what the road was like i could just tell the car well i could program it right hey here for the next hundred miles you're gonna drive a mile turn right go straight for a hundred yards and turn but i don't have you have to come up with a way that's not going to work, obviously. That's a silly solution. What kind of solution was in your car that kind of led into point one nav? Yeah, no, for sure. I mean, and to be honest, your, your, your proposed solution is not all that different than how it actually works. Um, the hard part is knowing where you are and where you want to go. And ultimately, what point one does is it solves um, at least that first problem of knowing where you are. Because if you have a map and you kind of can understand where, whether it's a road or a dirt trail, it kind of doesn't matter. What you're really trying to do is have the car, you know, steer so it stays on the road. And ultimately, what point one does and what, frankly, most uh, self-driving car companies are doing is they just have a map that's like incredibly accurate. We're talking down to like centimeter level. And then they have a way of kind of putting the car in that map to also centimeter level. And so instead of like when you and I drive, you know, we're constantly using our brains and our eyes to understand, oh, I want to stay, you know, <laughs> with, you know, the, the yellow line on the left. What's actually happening with a lot of these um, autonomous vehicles is they use this very high resolution map to understand that, okay, the vehicle itself is driving where it's supposed to. And that's something that you know, that perception problem of understanding, you know, the yellow line on the left and the white line on the right means that I'm where I should be. Um, it can be solved in a way that is more reliable for machines. And so pretty much every large scale uh, autonomous driving company is, is building things that way. And so this is a, I think, a really Im uh, important thing that maybe not be obvious to people who haven't you know, gone and built autonomous vehicles. 
but the reliance on these maps uh, is is really really important and it's one of the key things that actually makes us able to even have something that is approaching autonomous driving because i mean to date like there is no such thing as a fully autonomous car <laughs> like, we're still quite a ways away from that there are certainly ones that you know partially exist but there are still a lot of limitations in, t- in terms of what they can do and solving these problems of knowing where you are and making that very reliable that's one of the key ones that has to get solved to actually enable fully autonomous vehicles. So this is like a, a key problem that we got to figure out how to solve before the dream of an autonomous vehicle is even possible. So that's what we're talking about today. Let's do it. Uh, there's several technologies that you can use to identify like geographic position, uh, both indoors and outdoors. The one, you know, you and I probably know the the best or the listener probably knows the best is just GPS, global positioning system. Um, but there's other systems too. Uh, for example, enhanced observed time difference or enhanced GPS and also Wi-Fi and Bluetooth can do some of this too these days. So let's start our conversation uh, with like a brief overview. Can you tell me like what the state of location technologies is like today? Yeah, for sure. Um, So like all of the signals that you talked about, whether it's GPS or some of these enhancements or Wi-Fi or Bluetooth, um, they're all similar in that they're radio signals. So that means is that um, they're signals that can, you know, go through objects uh, and still be received. Um, now, the difference is that, you know, GPS is coming from the satellite in outer space um, versus, you know, Wi-Fi and Bluetooth are kind of little, you know, radios that are on the other side of your living room wall. And uh, so the power levels of what you see uh, on GPS are, are incredibly low compared to what you see on like things like Wi-Fi and Bluetooth. But the difference is that GPS was built uh, from day one for telling you where you are for navigation. And uh, the way that, you know, at a very, very high level that works is that those signals can ultimately tell you the distance from you to the satellite in space. And then kind of using more or less fancy geometry, you can triangulate that down to, you know, a pretty accurate position. Now, with things like Wi-Fi and Bluetooth, um, I think most people probably don't realize this, but actually, when you use your phone, like in a city, your phone is actually smart enough to uh, start to use those signals for location as well. And actually, the way that works is that sometimes, you know, the phone companies or other independent companies will actually um, build maps of like all the hotspots that, let's say, are in New York City, and then uh, be able to say just based on like what the relative uh, signal strength of the Wi-Fi that it sees, um, it can actually come up with a better solution than the you know GPS signal that's totally blocked by some tall buildings. And so um, this is actually kind of I would say one way of doing the thing that Point One does, which is um, called sensor fusion. And at its heart, the whole idea is that you can kind of use the best sensor for that particular circumstance that you find yourself in. So like if I'm driving on a big open highway, like GPS is going to be great because, you know, I can see all the satellites in the sky and that signal was designed for navigation. But in downtown Manhattan, um, you know, there's tall buildings everywhere. I'm lucky if I can see any sky. (laughs) And so um, there really your phone is automatically smart enough to say, well, I'm going to start using like this, you know, Wi-Fi map based technique. Um, and, you know, there's companies that now have 
take in Bluetooth um, and actually can do stuff like tell you where you are in a uh, store uh, based on which of these Bluetooth, they call them beacons, are, um, are transmitting. And so, um, yeah, I mean, there's a lot of these kind of like piecemeal technologies. And um, when you look at it, none of these are comprehensive. And so the real problem is how do you build a system that does the sensor fusion in a way that's like working in all situations that we care about? And uh, this is really kind of point one's goal is to make it so that uh, our users don't have to think about, do I use GPS? Do I use Wi-Fi? Do I use you know, inertial navigation or all these other kind of slam-based navigations? It just kind of works. And uh, yeah, that's, that's, that's the core idea. Can you talk about the accuracy of some of these location technologies and, and maybe like compare them based on use case? Yeah, for sure. Um, so, I mean, you know, GPS uh, originally was accurate to about, you know, let's say 10 meters um, after, you know, the government basically said that we're going to turn off this thing called selective availability. Um, so in the early days, like all the way in the 2000s, you know, there was worry that, oh, if we enable precise location, people are going to build all kinds of, you know, bad weapons and things like this. Um, and that didn't happen. So um, it was actually earlier than that, I think it was Clinton that signed the order that basically said that, okay, we're not going to scramble GPS anymore. So, <laughs> um, since then, you know, GPS has gotten better and better. And, you know, your phone today will do about, let's say, five meters of uh, GPS accuracy in ideal circumstances. The other methods like uh, EOTD and eGPS, I mean, eGPS can get you a lot better, but it's really more optimized for getting you GPS quickly. Um, so like, you know, you open Google Maps and you kind of want to see that blue dot instantly. That's a lot of uh, the AGPS type of functionality. And when you look at uh, Wi-Fi and Bluetooth, it really actually, those depend on the density of basically the stations that are out there. So in Manhattan, we're, you know, there's probably, <laughs> I don't even know how many thousands of Wi-Fi hotspots. Um, it's actually pretty good. Like you can get um, easily down to, you know, 10, 20 meters, which is plenty for your Uber to driver to find you and pick you up, you know, <laughs> but none of those technologies get close to the level that you need for something like uh, autonomous driving, where I need to know not just what lane I'm in on the road, but like, you know, where I am within the lane. <laughs> and so ultimately, um, I, I kind of like to think of location kind of like TV. Um, if you ever like watch like an old show that they've recorded, uh, it kind of blows your mind, especially like sports where it's like, I think that's the ball, but you know, it's like standard definition television is so bad. Um, that's kind of where location is today. And what companies uh, are working on is really enabling like high definition location. Um, and to us, that's something that's, you know, sub meter um, and specifically, I mean, in, in the centimeter kind of range. And what you can do with that is just uh, amazing. How accurate do we need to be for autonomous driving? So like current technologies, you're saying accurate to five meters. How accurate does this need to get for like autonomous driving to be, you know, possible? 
Yeah. So, I mean, our, our belief is the answer is, I mean, roughly speaking, 10 centimeters is, is where you need to be. Um, it's like kind of the rough width of a tire. Um, and I would say if you look at how accurately a, a, an average human driver can <laughs> put their car, it's about 10 centimeters. <laughs> and, you know, at the end of the day, um, what's even more important for autonomous driving is not just that it's accurate, but that it's reliable. Um, because if it's only accurate, let's say 50% of the time, um, you can't just be like crashing into things you know, the other 50% of the time. So <laughs> it's a, uh, it's a very important thing that, um, when we talk about accuracy, it's always um, like in a statistical sense. So like 95% of, uh, of, of a drive that you know, it's always below 10 centimeters of error. That's, that's kind of, it's always you know, tied to that kind of statistical availability. And um, this is just very common in all robotic systems, but is you know, very easy to understand, I think, for an autonomous vehicle. Okay, so before we get to point one, uh, what are some of the main applications of location-based technology today? Absolutely. I mean, location is one of these things that uh, is used in ways that are obvious and not obvious. Um, so the obvious ones are uh, when we use our phones and we uh, request a Lyft or an Uber, um, it's obviously sending your location to some server, and then it's using the location of all of its drivers to basically match you together. Um, that's used for uh, not just riders and passengers, but it's also used for um, delivery of goods. So whether you're a logistics company and you're trying to make it so that your driver can actually find the doorstep that they're trying to take that package to, or if you as the user are curious, hey, where's my you know, FedEx parcel? Um, so those are, those are some of the examples uh, that are more obvious. I think less obvious things um, that we've started to see in the market um, companies like to have location-dependent uh, experiences. So let me give you an actual example. Um, there's an explosion of like these scooter companies that are, you know, putting uh, their scooters all throughout cities. Um, and you know, you want these scooters to be safe. And so on sidewalks, generally, you want them to be going slower than if someone's riding the scooter like in the bike lane. And so people are actually using location technology to remotely enforce um, those speed limits on the um, on the scooter. So they just kind of have a map that tells them where the sidewalks are, and they say, okay, if the scooter is on the sidewalk, it can only go five miles an hour. Um, and that's like a very simple way to um, make it so that you know ultimately people are operating these things safely, and then the companies that are running the scooters um, don't run into problems with the you know municipalities. That's that's maybe one unobvious example. Um, one of the others that I think is kind of fun is uh, even in today's vehicles, um, you know, there's certain degrees of uh, autonomy, as people call it, really more advanced driver assistance. Um, using location allows these systems to kind of learn about their environment and become more intelligent, even in a coarse manner. So um, uh, some of the more advanced systems like those from uh, GM and some of the other newer car companies, um, they're using location to uh, augment their other sensors, you know, their cameras and LIDARs and things like this um, to know what to expect. So like, you know, you can know that the road is about to turn sharply and I need to slow down way before your camera can see that the road is about to turn, or it can know that that thing on the side is actually an off ramp and not another lane. <laughs> so it shouldn't, you know, merge into that to get around traffic. Um, I mean, these sound silly, but these are actually like real 
applications that people are working on. And uh, uh, that's, I mean, that's just the beginning. Uh, what we're going to see very soon um, is when you start to look at gaming, and especially in the AR side, people using location to make it so that you don't just have like, oh, here's a Pokemon in some virtual environment, but multiple people can actually see like the same virtual character um, on like a consistently rendered plane. Um, and what that means in, I guess, English is that like the experience really feels magical, right? <laughs> because um, it looks like undistinguishable from reality because all the, you know, what's in front of what and all these things are, are operating correctly in real time. Um, and you can only do that uh, if you really have uh, accurate and reliable location. So just, I mean, the diversity of those use cases, I think is what's so exciting about the space. Yeah, and I'm sure you could like keep going, right? Um, yeah. But we only have so much time. Cool. Well, let's get to point one. Um, give us the elevator pitch. Uh, yeah, how, how do you explain it in uh, 30, 60 seconds or less? Yeah, um, so I mean, point one is the API for precise location. So what we're doing is making it so developers can very easily get to centimeter location on anything that moves in the real world. And that's that's really what point one is. You don't need to think about you know GPS and all these low level sensors. It's it's basically an API that just tells you where your things are, um, and that ultimately unlocks all the things that we just talked about in terms of use cases. It makes it easier for people to build um, on top of us. Um, we like to think of ourselves as kind of like behind the curtain. You know, <laughs> we're 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 um, enabling people to build magical experiences, um, but we, we may not be the company that people see um, directly. So consumers never really interact with point one. It's really, we're a developer first company. Are you a developer? Uh, my question is, you know, what was the aha moment that led to kind of creating the company? I'm wondering, you know, were you a developer and you had a need for like, oh, a location technology uh, that's in the format of an API that I can just get location via. What's the story of starting the company? Yeah, I mean, basically, the I skipped over uh, in my background. Uh, after the Urban Challenges, I ran um, the robotics lab at Cornell for a short period of time. And I helped a whole bunch of students work on all kinds of projects um, in robotics. And I saw that the problem that everyone ran into is that as soon as you took the robot out of the lab, um, it was very, very difficult to do anything because you just didn't have like a grid to operate over. Meaning like if you can talk about where the robot is or where the obstacle is or, you know, where its goal is, um, it becomes very easy. Basically, it's almost like a computer game, right? Um, but if you don't have that like very simple construct of uh, location, uh, these, these uh, relatively simple use cases become impossible. And so I think the aha moment, frankly, was we always knew that this was a big problem, but the real issue was that it was very expensive to solve. Um, so like back in the urban challenge, we probably spent somewhere between 50 and $100,000 to build the system that told us where we were. Um, and obviously that doesn't scale to uh, uh, almost any use case. <laughs> and so what we saw though, was that the price of a lot of the um, different parts to build the system had come down by orders of magnitude and that um, a lot of the compute that you need to actually run these algorithms had also become very inexpensive. And a lot of this frankly was driven by what we were seeing with smartphones. 
And so when we looked at this, we said, hey, listen, that system that cost us fifty to $100,000 to build 15 years ago, we can now build for, I mean, less than $100. And so that really was like, wow, now it makes sense to put this on every scooter or every car or every, frankly, dog call. <laughs> and so it's, um, it's amazing what happens when all of a sudden uh, the, the combination of the technology readiness and um, the uh, price of the components coming down, um, it, it really changes what's, uh, what's possible. And hey, scooters are a lot easier to replace than dogs. So let's get those location services in the collars first. <laughs> I agree. All right. Who, who are the people behind Point One? Who have you kind of gone, uh, who have you brought to, uh, who have you brought around you uh, to go on this journey with you? As you can imagine, you know, the first thing that we had to solve was to take a bunch of um, really, really hard uh, algorithmic problems, math problems, these kinds of things. Um, and find the best people to uh, to solve them. And you know, I was really lucky to have uh, folks that I'd worked with uh, both in the university days and also uh, in you know some of my earlier startups and the DARPA challenge. And so I basically went back to them and said, "Hey, listen, like this is the opportunity. Uh, there's something amazing here. We can go and do some of the things that we've been working on, and uh, now do it at like commercial scale, which is really exciting." Um, so yeah, one of our uh, first people to join the company uh, was uh, Mike Kurzel, and he's basically responsible for building all of our uh, what we call like backend services. So you can imagine as an API company, um, that's all the stuff that runs in the cloud, all the servers that kind of do all the processing, um, and uh, that's that's been a huge uh, benefit for us because frankly, it's one of the places that we really excel at uh, when you compare it to our competitors. After that, uh, I brought on Ryan Doherty, who is uh, basically in charge of our sensor fusion algorithms. So he's uh, leading a team now that is figuring out that, you know, how do we work with this sensor or that sensor? And when do we do that? And basically building an algorithm that can automatically do that and use the right thing for the right time and the right environment. And then uh, lastly, uh, Karen Lineweber is uh, in charge of our computer vision. So this is basically when we look at how do we take the world in places where like that GPS signal is not coming in. One of point one's core strategies is to uh, use cameras. And so that camera data is very, very difficult to work with. Um, and we've been building uh, algorithms to, to basically incorporate that into this sensor fusion package um, for the last five years. And it's, uh, we've done some really amazing things, enabled like, navigation in like underground parking garages where obviously you have you know, no GPS at all. Um, and uh, it's, it's uh, amazing to see when you take all of those together, the technology um, really can work anywhere. Since then, you know, obviously we've added folks on the sales team. Uh, Mike Coletta leads uh, my sales organization. Uh, he came from, you know, selling an automotive for over a decade. He was at Ford and a company called Laird that builds like antennas and really helped build uh, the business side of Point One. And so I think that we've come together now with something that's uh, an incredible technology and a team that knows how to bring it to market. And that's, um, I think, two of the most important ingredients in building a business. Let's look under the hood. Uh, talk about your tech stack and what kind of important choices you had to make early on. 
our technology stack is admittedly very complex. Um, and I think this is true of a lot of API companies that um, the whole value of what you do is that you make it so other developers don't have to build all the complexity that you did. <laughs> they could just kind of uh, call something and take advantage of that. So we've, uh, we've built the, the vast majority of our system actually in a very old language called C++. <laughs> and, uh, you know, it's something that we've ultimately because part of keeping things so that it can work in mass market is they have to be very efficient. Um, and that means that we can use smaller processors, uh, lower cost, lower power. And that's actually worked out really well for us. Um, so we um, just made an announcement like a few months ago of a, uh, of a hardware module with one of our uh, very close partners. And uh, yeah, I mean, it's, it's amazing because the whole thing fits in like a package that's smaller than the size of a quarter. That wouldn't have been possible <laughs> if we had chosen a different, um, uh, you know, easier to use, let's say, language. Um, now, obviously, like for cloud services and things like that, um, we are using more modern things. Uh, and so we're using languages, uh, you know, like Go, a lot of Node, a lot of uh, actually Java as well. And it's built on uh, a lot of, I would say, modern cloud microservices architecture. Um, we use Kubernetes extensively. <laughs> um, and, you know, I didn't even talk about part of what makes our technology work is that we have roughly about a thousand of these kind of sensors um, that are uh, permanently installed across the United States. Um, and we use those to help actually correct uh, the GPS signal. So I kind of told you before, you know, GPS is only accurate to five meters, um, but it turns out that if you can figure out like what happened to the signal from the time it left the satellite to the time it arrived on earth, um, you can kind of like cancel out for that. Um, think about it like reading glasses for your GPS receiver. <laughs> and uh, this is, this is part of what our product does is that it uses these, you know, thousand sensors across the U S um, to understand, okay, like what's wrong with the signals here in San Francisco or in New York or wherever you might be. And then you're, uh, algorithms can basically remove that error. They literally just subtract it off of um, what they see from the live satellites. And uh, this allows us to basically get like 100x improvements. So quite literally, you can get down to like five centimeters of accuracy from GPS alone, um, which, I mean, just think about it. It's like the size of a baseball from something that's orbiting in space, you know, 25,000 kilometers. <laughs> it's, it's, it's just absolutely uh, mind-blowing even you know we built a lot of this technology i still can't believe it so you know we see um there's there's so many pieces to what we have to build um and i think this is part of uh the uniqueness of our team i mean the whole company is 30 people and um we've built uh all those things i just said with this um, incredibly small but very uh um, hardworking team. Can you talk about two questions? One, I'm curious, like what what kind of sensors uh, you you have installed uh, that help you with the reading glasses adjustment? We'll call it. And second question is, yeah, sensor fusion. Can you just talk about sensor fusion? We kind of mentioned it at the top. It sounds complex. I kind of wish I'd asked it before I asked about the tech stack. What is sensor fusion? Let's start there, and then you can tell me what kind of sensors you got all over the United States. And if <laughs> well, d don't be worried. 
Yeah, let's uh, let's start with sensor fusion. So, yeah, I mean, at a high level, you know, sensor fusion is this uh, entire discipline to understand if we have, you know, a camera, let's say, that's telling us one thing about location, and then we have a GPS that's telling us another thing about location. Uh, and then we may also have something called an IMU that measures, you know, your rate of rotation and accelerations uh, may also tell you something about um, your location or even just how you move. How do you combine like this incomplete information that you have from all these different sensors and do that in a way that you can say is uh accurate or robust or any metric really. Um, and, you know, in a very naive way, um, what people used to do was to say, okay, well, I'm outside, use GPS. Okay, now I went inside, use the camera or use, you know, some other Bluetooth sensor. And it's, it's just like this hard switch. Um, the problem with that is that, you know, your position is going to jump all over the place when you switch between those systems. And so uh, we use a whole lot of math <laughs> to basically understand how you can basically learn which sensor is the right one to trust and then do that in a not like binary, like on or off way, but actually blend them in a way that is uh, statistically correct. And so what do I mean by this? Um, your GPS, let's say as an example, just may be really confident about like your east-west direction, but like really not sure about your north-south direction because of, you know, a building that's blocking you there. But you may have another sensor that's telling you, hey, I know that, uh, you know, there's no way that you've moved in the north-south uh, direction. And so what our algorithms are able to do is basically use that information to kind of fill in the blanks. And it can use that um for instance, it knows a car um, not only has information about GPS and IMUs and all these other sensors, but also knows that like generally a car is not drifting sideways, right? It, it can basically move forward and move with the wheels. And so we have a uh, an algorithm that can take all of those kind of like constraints and then effectively solve for what is the most likely combination of all this data and then distill it down into like, okay, what's the position? Uh, and not only just tell you what the position is, but then tell you how confident it is. Because if I have two sensors that both think they're confident, but have different answers, then I want to tell my user that, hey, there's some disagreement here. So I'm going to say that I'm not so sure about where I am. And so sensor fusion is all of that. It's combining sensors, saying how confident you are in that combination and then being able to kind of like switch around the weights of all of those different sensors in a way that's actually intelligent. Um, it's incredibly hard to do. And that's why we tried to make this an API that developers shouldn't need to know how to do that to build a lawnmower robot, as an example. Awesome. Well, thank you for breaking it down. Um, sensor fusion. Wow. <laughs> Talk about some milestones you've achieved along your journey so far. What, what are some of maybe like the two or three key milestones that you've achieved? Yeah. So I would say like our first milestone was getting these like, you know, thousand uh, reference uh, sensors across uh, the, the U.S. And that was um, one of those things that when we started the company, everyone kind of looked at us like we were crazy because, I mean, quite literally, we have like a thousand leases you know, for maybe like two by two foot plots of land. And uh, we have these sensors that are deployed and 
literally modeling things like space weather. And that system is fully operational. Um, and it's something that like today uh, we can go and demonstrate uh, anywhere in the United States that we can get to 10 centimeter level accuracy with GNSS uh, GPS alone. And that's, uh, that's a really amazing capability. Um, so that's, that's, that's one thing that we did that we're quite proud of. Uh, I would say the second uh, is more of a company business milestone where it's very, very difficult to sell into car companies in their production cars. And we're very proud of the fact that we were able to get not one, but two production cars using our system. I know you'll ask, and unfortunately, I can't say yet who they are. <laughs> um, it's, it's, it's very, very considered competitive information. I hope too soon. But it's, it is really, uh, you know, as a small startup to have a big car company and not just one, but two of them frankly, take a chance on us, um, not only that the technology works, but that we'll be able to deliver it at scale, I think really just shows uh, how impressed they were with the technology. And um, we're really happy to have that um, vote of confidence from our uh, customers. All right. So no follow-up questions allowed. Let's talk about the business. Tell, tell us about your primary users. Oh, well, you kind of mentioned it's for the developers. Talk more about that, and, and how do you build awareness like among your users that Point One is the solution that's you know out there for them to use? For sure. I mean, so when we started, we have a very broad goal. Like developers is a huge market, and so we had to be a little more specific in the beginning. And so we said we're going to focus in the automotive uh, sector. And for the first you know three four years, uh, that's really what we did. We said we're going to just do everything we can to get into car companies. And uh, we were thankfully successful there. Now, what we've started to do is to expand that um, to a more generic use case. And what we're doing here is looking at people who are building um, the next generation of robotics. These are basically mobile platforms that need to know where they are. Uh, They may be doing all kinds of different things, whether it's, you know, a car that's picking up a human, whether it's like a robotic lawnmower, whether it's a scooter, um, it's sort of something to us that um, we see all of those as developers that need precise location. So a lot of our uh, current focus actually is how do we take the technology that we've now proven in automotive and bring it to all of these now emerging use cases. A lot of that has been solving for making it easy to adopt. And so that means partnering with these uh, like chip companies that can go and make like a module that lets you use point one by having a very simple part that you just add to your robot. And then all of a sudden you have 10 centimeter location. That's really actually what we're striving for. It's, it's a you know, plug and play, so to speak. <laughs> and then making it so that when we look at adopting the solution, uh, it's very easy to do. You don't need to have you know, a PhD in all kinds of aerospace to, to use it. It's, it's something that if you're a software developer, you should be able to get started and understand how it works and uh, really scale from, from this very uh, simple to use system. And I think this is the other side of point one. Uh, yes, we build a lot of hard algorithms and all the things that we talked about, but we also really try to focus on making it easy to use uh, for developers uh, so that, you know, at the end of the day, they don't have to go to point one college or something. You know, it's like they could just really start with um, easy documentation, 
and uh, have a solution working in, in a day. And that's, that's the ultimate goal. Talk about your business model. How, how is, uh, how's your business going to make money? Our primary source of money is we charge a subscription for uh, using our kind of precise location API. It's set up as, you know, per device per month. Um, and depending on how many, you know, things you have, it's, you know, got different tiers. Uh, but we always try to make it affordable, um, even for people building one or two things. Because at the end of the day, you know, we definitely have some customers that have tens or hundreds of thousands of devices, um, and we can scale, you know, the pricing to make that work. But we want to also have the customers who are those, you know, new startups building the latest, you know, robotic something, or uh, even, you know, developers that are just trying stuff out, we want them to be able to experience um, what we think is a pretty magical experience. All right, let's move to some closing questions. To kind of recap the the conversation we've had today, can you tell me like the one thing about point one that in your eyes makes you stand out from the crowd? Yeah, I'd say, you know, point one is probably one of the only companies that is really taking a comprehensive view on how to solve uh, location specifically for uh, things that move in the real world, these kind of robotic type of applications. And that is probably the most unique perspective that we have. And I think a lot of that, frankly, comes from my and my team's experience of actually building, you know, full robotic systems. We bring that lens of like, what would we want? And we went and we built it as opposed to others that kind of started from like, oh, we're, you know, super excited about GPS. So let's go build that. Like, that's not our perspective. We're much more, um, how do we solve the problem? Great answer. And yeah, I mean, it, it stands out to me too. It sounds like a really difficult problem to solve. I like the origin story, right? This was like a problem that a lot of robotics teams were having. So it seems like a big enough challenge for sure. Speaking of challenges, what are some challenges you face as a founder that keep you up at night? Yeah, I mean, you know, there's, I think the usual things, obviously, we want to make sure our products um, are successful in the market and all those kinds of things. And thankfully, like, I think we've had good success there. Um, you know, I think there's a lot of, uh, especially with the pandemic, and then some of the things that are happening in the world, uh, there's a lot of uncertainty, um, you know, chip shortages, and, uh, you know, the, the terrible stuff that's happening in Ukraine, obviously. And I think that it's just something where, um, those can have ripple effects, especially on like big customers. And from just the business's perspective, it's, there's a lot of uncertainty there. I, you know, I do think that we've seen some robustness against it in terms of like what our customers are doing, but it's still, I think it's a, it is a challenge uh, for uh, not just us, frankly, I think a lot of startups are, are uh, in that kind of phase. <laughs> Before we get out of here, what's the best way for our listeners to reach you and, and point one navigation, maybe learn more? Yeah. Um, so, you know, obviously we encourage people to check out our website uh, at point one nav.com. And uh, we have all of our kind of products there. Uh, like I did say, um, we will be announcing later this year um, a very easy and uh, budget-friendly developer kit. Um, so if you're building the next generation of robotics and uh, you need to know where your device is, uh, by all means, uh, please do reach out and uh, we'd love to help. 
Awesome. All right. Well, thank you so much. Uh, we're going to end our show. Uh, if you enjoyed it, please you know subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Leave us a rating. Make sure it's five stars. Aaron, thank you for joining the show. We appreciate your time, uh, your insights, and you know this is really exciting. So best of luck. Awesome. Well, thank you, Oleg. I really appreciate you having me. And uh, yes, I uh, hope to talk again soon. <laughs>